Parcasters, if you think the stories we tell here are dark, you're in for a real treat today. That's because we're playing two episodes from the hit Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. Discover history's most feared felons. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, enjoy. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex work that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Before Madonna, before Betty Page, there was a woman so outwardly sexual, she shocked a nation. You may know Mae West as one of the early stars of the Hollywood Golden Age, but she was also a writer. And her favorite subject, the one she returned to again and again, eventually landed her in jail. Today, we're going to meet an artist who showed audiences how good it felt to be bad and who refused to let trouble with the law slow her down. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll meet Mae West. Before she was a star, Mae was a young girl from Brooklyn with a dream. We'll explore how she gained infamy on the Broadway stage and then battled obscenity charges for her sexual scripts and performances. Next week, we'll look at how Mae's arrest could be considered one of the best things that ever happened to her. Then we'll follow her to Hollywood, where she continued to defy authorities, public opinion, and gender stereotypes throughout the rest of her illustrious career. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mae West's story starts two years before she was born with her parents. 
1891, John and Matilda West were a young Brooklyn couple with big dreams for their future. 29-year-old John was a bare-knuckles boxer known as Battlin' Jack, who had made a name for himself in the ring. 21-year-old Matilda was a German immigrant and a corset model. Her family had hoped she would marry someone of higher status or wealth, but Matilda loved John, and their shared passion guided them. In 1891, the couple had their first child, a beautiful baby girl named Katie. They adored her. But then tragedy struck. After only a few months, Katie died. Matilda and John were devastated. When Matilda became pregnant again two years later, she and John worried that it all would happen again. They wanted a child so desperately, but the trauma of Katie's death weighed heavily on them. Still, they hoped their next child would be healthy and strong. On August 17, 1893, she came into the world. The Wests had another little girl. Matilda and John named her Mary Jane, but from day one, she was always called May. And from day one, their world revolved around her. Matilda doted on May in any way she could. Whatever her little girl asked for, she got. When it came to May, Matilda couldn't say no. May also liked things a certain way. She wouldn't eat food off her plate unless it was presented beautifully. And she wouldn't wear a dress if it had so much as a tiny wrinkle in it. Aesthetics were important to the little girl, and this included her own looks. One day while they were out shopping, Matilda noticed four-year-old May looking intently into the store windows. At first, she thought May was eyeing the dresses and toys, but when Matilda noticed her staring at a display of gardening tools, she realized what May was actually doing, enjoying her own reflection. Before we continue with May's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to researcher Susan Harder, pride is a sign of high self-esteem in a child. Others include confidence, curiosity, and the feeling of having a purpose. May demonstrated all those traits. Even at four years old, she wasn't looking at her reflection and criticizing it. She loved how she appeared. That self-esteem was so strong that when Matilda became pregnant again, five-year-old May didn't seem worried. Most kids get jealous of a younger sibling who might steal away their attention, but May knew that nothing would change between her and her mother. They were closer than close, like two halves of a whole. Even after the birth of her sister Mildred, who was known as Beverly, in 1898, and her brother John Jr. in 1900, May was still her mother's favorite. Matilda continued to focus on May in a way she didn't with her younger kids. In fact, May still felt a bit like an only child. It wasn't just Matilda who gave May her full attention. John did too. While Matilda taught her daughter about clothes, John taught May how to lift weights and the importance of being physically fit. But they also taught her a love of performing. 
Both her parents were extroverts, even if their lives hadn't taken them directly to the stage. Matilda herself had always dreamed of being an actress. While she didn't pressure her daughter toward that career, she was ecstatic when May gravitated toward the theater on her own, and May fed off her mother's approval. One day, seven-year-old May told her mom that she wanted to perform in an amateur show, Common for the times, this was a sort of neighborhood talent show that ran in a real theater with a professional crew. May's father was nervous. He thought that the audience might be mean to her, even though she was only a young girl. But May wasn't afraid. So her mother convinced her father that everything would be all right. If May was brave enough to go on stage, then they should be supportive. Reluctantly, he agreed. The performance was held at the Brooklyn Royal Theater, a 700-seat auditorium, and it was sold out. Seven-year-old May stood backstage in a pink and green satin dress, wearing a white picture hat that seemed too big for her. She watched as other performers went on stage ahead of her, and she marveled at the spotlight that shone down on the actors. When a stagehand told her that she would get a spotlight too, May beamed thrilled with the idea. Then the MC announced her name. It was her time. May walked onto the stage. Then she waited for the spotlight to pick her up like the stagehand had said, but it didn't. She stood in darkness for a moment and then she stamped her foot and demanded, where's my spotlight? The crowd loved it. They thought it was all a part of her act. Sure enough, the spotlight swung onto May, and she grinned. Now she could start. She belted out her song, It's Movin' Day, as she danced across the stage. The audience stopped laughing and watched in awe. They had expected to hear a tinkly, high-pitched little girl's voice, but instead, May's voice was deep and raspy. Everyone was spellbound. Before she'd even finished, the audience was applauding and tossing coins onto the stage in praise. May was on cloud nine. She had just had her first performance. It was glorious. And she knew in that moment that she was never going to do anything else. That included school. After third grade, May stopped going altogether. Neither of her parents had much education, and they didn't see the point in forcing May back into the classroom. Instead, May learned through life. She taught herself to read and picked up German from her mother. Teaching herself like this required dedication. But May had only one love, and that was the stage. From her very first performance, her fate as a professional actor had been sealed. Nothing else would satisfy her. Sure enough, less than a year later, eight-year-old May joined a professional acting troupe. For the next four years, she filled every child role they had, and she held her own with the other adult actors, often stealing the show. When she was around 12 years old, she began to look too womanly to play a young kid. So for a few years, May was left in limbo. Too old to play a kid, but too young to play a woman. It would have been an incredibly lonely time had May not become enthralled with a new discovery, boys. 
At 12, May started going out with groups of boys and kissing all of them. She wanted to see what she liked and what she didn't. When another girl told May's parents what she was doing, John was furious. He was concerned about his daughter's reputation. A tarnished image could ruin her chances of marriage. But Matilda wasn't upset about that. She didn't want May getting married too young and giving up on her dreams like she had. So instead of telling May to stop kissing boys, Matilda took a slightly different approach. Whenever May started to fancy one boy over the others, Matilda would slip in a comment about some flaw of his. And once she pointed this out, May couldn't unsee it. So she would move on to the next boy, and then her mom would make another comment. The cycle would go on and on, but the end result was exactly what Matilda intended. May never cared about any boy more than her career. Plus, May decided that there was no reason to settle for just one boy when she could have several. Boys became just a bit of fun for May, until she met one who made her question everything. Up next, May risks her entire career over a lustful romantic fling. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. After a year of performing in amateur shows in Brooklyn, eight-year-old Mae West joined a professional acting troupe. She performed with them for the next four years until she looked too old to play a child. Her maturing body forced her to take a break from acting until she looked old enough to play an adult. When she was 14, a friend of May's parents came calling with an offer. He wanted her to perform in his vaudeville act. Vaudeville was a popular type of entertainment at the time, made up of comedy sketches and song and dance, all material that suited May well. The show required her to go on the road. May said yes right away. It wasn't even a question. And her parents supported her. She spent the next couple of years with the troupe, living her dream. In 1909, 16-year-old May crossed paths with 20-year-old Frank Wallace, a jazz dancer and fellow performer who she'd briefly met two years earlier. She hadn't paid him much attention before, but this time around, things were different. Frank was incredibly handsome, and May was now old enough to truly appreciate that. Plus, all the other girls in the company flocked to him. May wanted to prove she was the best out of all of them. She didn't have to work too hard either. Frank only had eyes for her, and she loved the attention he gave her. May got so swept up in Frank's adoration that she started to do things she had never done before, like agreeing to partner with him in a song and dance for the vaudeville show. She had always been a solo act before, and her performances often played off her sexuality. When she had a man up on stage with her, 
it didn't land with audiences quite as well. But May didn't care. She was 17 and infatuated. For a brief moment, her career seemed to come second to a man. And then, not long after they paired up on stage, Frank asked May to marry him. May heard her mother's voice in the back of her head, reminding her not to settle down too early. But there was another voice, a much louder one, that overpowered Matilda's warnings. Her curiosity had gotten the better of her. Now, she didn't want to wait any longer. She needed to know what sex was like. And even May, who was ahead of her time, still felt marriage was a necessary prerequisite. So, while they were on tour in Wisconsin in April 1911, May married Frank. He was 21 and she was 17, just old enough to get married without her parents' consent. That was part of the deal. She made Frank promise to keep it a secret. She knew her father would be angry and her mother would be heartbroken. May felt horrible that she was hiding something from her mom, and for the first and perhaps only time in her life, she was ashamed. It was quite unlike May to feel that way. After all, she was incredibly confident, and according to researcher June Tangney, high self-esteem can protect an individual from excessive feelings of shame. Philosopher Hilga Landwehr explains that the fact she felt discomfort at all meant that May was well aware of having transgressed a desirable and binding norm, in this case, lying to her parents. By the time the newlyweds made their way back to Brooklyn, May knew she had made a mistake. With the sexual tension gone and her curiosity about sex fulfilled, May had little interest in marriage, especially to Frank. She realized what her mom had known all along, that being married would sideline her career. Frank already had plans to move them out of the city and into the suburbs, and May wasn't about to let that happen. But she wasn't sure how to get out of it. She couldn't get a divorce, because that would be admitting to the marriage in the first place. Then she heard of a new opening in a vaudeville act. It was perfect for Frank. And perhaps more importantly, it would require him to be on the road for a year. She used her influence to get the gig for him and then encouraged him to take it. Frank left with the tour. A few months later, deep into his tour, May broke the news that she wanted out. Surprisingly, Frank didn't put up a fight. By the end of 1911, Less than a year after getting married, the young couple were unofficially separated, although they remained legally married. May asked that Frank never tell anyone about their marriage. He reluctantly agreed, and to his credit, he held on to that secret for decades. Although they remained legally married, May never worried about that becoming an issue with future partners she decided she would never marry a man again, no matter how she felt about him. Her mother had been right. Her career and herself were more than enough. That same year, 18-year-old May appeared in her first Broadway play. 
By that time, she had a distinctive style. It didn't matter that she was playing a supporting character. She commanded the stage with her unique, raspy voice and her ability to make anything sound sexual. She was also beginning to develop a persona that followed her both on and off the stage. A sultry woman with swagger, confidence, and an unabashed sexuality. Audiences loved it, but it was becoming hard to distinguish where the character ended and the real Mae West began. One Sunday afternoon after a performance in 1911, two of New York's biggest producers came backstage to see her. Both of them offered her roles. And like always, Mae was discerning. But not about the role, the venue. She wanted to make sure she went to the best theater for her intimate style, where she could interact with her audience. So she chose the smaller theater and accepted the role without even knowing what it was. It turned out it was to play an Irish maid. As written, May was supposed to play her character straight, but she couldn't bring herself to do something so boring. May asked the producer if she could make a few changes to her character and her lines, something she'd done often for her vaudeville shows. The producer looked at her like she was crazy and told her to wait until rehearsals before she started suggesting things. May nodded and shut up, but in the back of her mind, she had a plan. So on opening night, she put her own spin on the role. May's Irish maid was bright but lazy and funny. She reinterpreted the meaning of lines, packing them with innuendo. And when she couldn't make what was on the page work, she improvised. The audience loved it. May made all the changes without the writer's approval, but the play got so much praise, he happily went along with it. And he got the credit. That was all right with May, at least for the time being. She was just thrilled to be up on stage. Her parents were in the audience on opening night, and they were so proud of her. For May, that was more than enough. Over the next few years, May was incredibly dedicated to her work and wouldn't allow herself to be distracted by anything, with one exception. In 1916, 23-year-old May met a fellow performer known only as Dee. Soon they were embroiled in a passionate affair. In fact, their chemistry was so electric and their sex so mind-blowing that May thought about him at all times, like she couldn't stop herself. It was so consuming that May found herself focusing more on Dee than on her work, and he was crazy about her. Almost too crazy. He was jealous of anyone who looked at May, and he threatened men left and right, sometimes throwing punches in an effort to defend May's honor. But she didn't want or need defending. In fact, it hurt the persona she'd spent years cultivating, the single, independent woman who could fend for herself. Dee didn't understand that. He wanted her to be his and his alone. When he proposed... May promptly turned him down. He figured she was just playing hard to get and tried to change her mind. He even went to her parents to have them reason with May. They told him what he should have already known. May didn't do anything unless she wanted to. 
Eventually, May ended the relationship. She couldn't marry him, and he would never stop asking. One day, she just up and left for a new tour and didn't tell Dee where she was going. She felt a little bad about it, but she knew if she called him to explain, she might just get swept back under his spell. She couldn't risk doing that. Instead, she threw herself back into her work for the next two years. Then, in 1918, 25-year-old May landed her first leading role in a legitimate play called Sometime. Finally, after toiling away for years, she felt validated. She had made it. But it wouldn't be long before May got restless. For her, good wasn't good enough. She wanted to be the best. And to do that, she knew she would have to break some rules. Up next, May battles obscenity charges on Broadway. Now back to the story. May West toiled away in vaudeville acts and small-time plays for nearly a decade. Men came and went, but May's true love remained the stage. At 25, her devotion paid off when she landed the leading role in a high-profile play. Sometime opened amidst the spread of the 1918 influenza pandemic, but the show continued its run anyway. Audiences weren't as big as the company would have hoped, but they took them however they could get them. For her part, May was just happy to be on stage in a starring role, and she loved spending time with her fellow performers. Each night after the show, they'd go out to grab food and drinks. One night, they all went to a late-night cafe to dance. There, May saw a black couple doing a dance called the shimmy. Today, most people know this move, but back then, it was brand new to the scene, and people found it provocative. May couldn't stop watching. She thought there was something incredibly sensual about it, and something a little funny, too. Even after she and her friends left the cafe that night, she kept thinking about the move. While it had been something new to her, the shimmy was a well-known dance within the Black community, but May had no hesitation about using it as her own. It was textbook cultural appropriation, taking from the Black community for her own personal gain. The next day, May incorporated the shimmy into her show, and the audience went wild for it. Like her, the spectators were predominantly white, and none of them had seen such a dance before. Some critics bashed the move as too sexual, but that led to a lot of curiosity from theatergoers as well. Everyone wanted to see this new move, other white performers started to incorporate it into their acts as well, if they could do it properly, that is. Some were simply unable to shimmy like May. Sometime ran for 283 performances. After that, the company decided to go on tour, and they assumed May would go with them. But she had other plans. She believed it was best to leave while things were still going well, so she left the show at its height. Because of the show's success, May thought it would be easy to find her next role. Instead, it was crickets. No one was lining up to offer her a thing. May realized that if she wanted to perform, she was going to have to make opportunities for herself. 
May went back to the vaudeville circuit, but this time she took the shimmy with her. She didn't care if criticism followed her. She always aimed to keep things fresh and entertaining. She would much rather take some risks than potentially do a boring show. And she certainly wasn't boring. It's often said that creative people are risk-takers. According to research done at the Cognition Institute and School of Psychology at Plymouth University, there's a correlation between those who take social risks and creative risks. It's not necessarily that artists are willing to gamble away all their earnings or jump off a cliff, but they are willing to go against the societal grain in order to do something different. The more inclined they are to break social stigmas, the more creative they are. They aren't afraid to dream big and do something unique. This was the case for May, who was always looking to push the envelope. While out on the circuit, May spent her time offstage reading. She was particularly interested in Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Both psychoanalysts had theories about the importance of sex in both the conscious and subconscious minds. May found the topic fascinating. After all, sex played a huge part in her own life. So she searched for plays that might explore such themes and was frustrated when she couldn't find any. Sex might have been a taboo subject at the time, but May also believed it was the driving force behind all interactions between men and women. Since no one else wanted to talk about it, May decided she would be the one to breach the topic. So she wrote a one-act vaudeville play for herself to star in called The Ruby Ring. It was about female sex and power, but she dressed it up with songs, jokes, and fabulous costumes to keep the audiences engaged and interested. May debuted the show in 1921, and audiences loved it, mostly because it was so different from anything anyone had seen. Until then, May never saw herself as a writer and had never written an entire play. She was just an actress who needed material and was too impatient to wait around. But in writing a role all her own, May set herself apart from the rest of the crowd and laid the groundwork for the next chapter of her life. In 1924, theater owners and producers Lee and J.J. Schubert decided they wanted to mount a Broadway play starring Mae West. As two of the most successful producers in town, they had their pick of materials. It was the chance of a lifetime, so 31-year-old May came home from the vaudeville circuit and focused on reading every unproduced script she could get her hands on. She and the Schuberts searched high and low for the right play for her, but nothing felt quite right. After a while, May's mother came to her and told her she was looking in the wrong places. She shouldn't be searching for someone else's play, May ought to write her own. But May had no idea what to write about. Unsure of where to start, she looked everywhere for inspiration. One day, May drove along the New York waterfront. Well, her driver drove her. May had attempted to learn how to drive once, and that had been the last time she ever sat in the driver's seat. Instead, she sat in the back and gazed out the window. Sailors meandered along the water, 
And then May spotted a group of them surrounding a woman. She was, as May would later say, crumpled looking, wilted like old salad. But she had a magnificent turban wrapped around her head with bird of paradise flowers tucked into it. May watched the woman interact with the men. It was clear that she was a sex worker. Even after the car drove down the block and the woman faded from view, May couldn't stop thinking about her. There was something there, a story to tell. When May got home, she scribbled down her thoughts, and then she just kept going. Whenever she could spare a minute, May wrote out her ideas. Eventually, they started to take shape into the form of a play. May's lawyer and lover at the time, Jim Timoney, brought in a professional writer to help May smooth out the story. When they finished, May gave the play its name, The Albatross. But no one got the title. It was too weird. Everyone kept asking what an albatross was. So May changed the name to something unmistakable, sex. No one asked what the play was about after that. In reality, the play was about more than just sex. The main character was a sex worker caught between two men and two potential futures. And it asked the question, could she escape being a sex worker or did she even want to? The play opened off-Broadway in New London, Connecticut. Only a few people showed up, and all of them sat in the balcony where tickets were cheaper. When May came out on stage, she squinted into the audience, then told them all to move down to the better seats in front. After that dismal showing, May considered shutting down the play right then and there. Her mother and Jim Timoney had produced the play, and May didn't want to lose her mom's money. But Matilda wouldn't let May quit. She told her to just give it some time for word of mouth to spread. They didn't have to wait long. By the very next night, a line of sailors trailed out the door, all wanting tickets. All were intrigued by the racy subject matter and rumors of sexy scenes. There were so many people waiting to get in that they had to sell some standing room only tickets to accommodate the overflow. <laughs> Sex ended up being so popular that it eventually made its way to Broadway on April 26, 1926. And there, it was met with its staunchest critics yet. At first, reviewers shunned sex. They thought it was beneath them, and if they just ignored it, it would go away. But audiences loved it, and soon even the critics couldn't disregard the play. Instead, they tried to bash it. They hated May's performance as a lustful sexual woman who took pleasure in her sex work. They claimed that she was corrupting the citizens of New York and encouraging indecency and immorality. The Times called it a crude, inept play, cheaply produced and poorly acted. The New Yorker accused May of capitalizing on street sweepings, and Variety called May's character in the play, quote, the Babe Ruth of stage prosties. That strategy backfired. With each bad review, more people flocked to the theater. They all wanted to see what was so scandalous. 
It was a sensation. May sold out nearly every show for a year. But it wasn't just the theater critics who hated the play. It was the era of prohibition, and many lawmakers and religious organizations were dead set on eliminating anything that could be viewed as immoral or obscene. Plenty of New Yorkers thought May's play was an affront to decent, respectable people. However, the mayor of New York, Jimmy Walker, wasn't one of them. He opposed prohibition, and he didn't have any interest in censoring theater shows. As long as he was in charge, May's detractors could complain all they wanted, and she could just keep on doing what she was doing. Of course, this just enraged the naysayers more, but their time to strike was drawing close. In 1927, when Mayor Walker went out of town on a trip to Havana, he left his deputy, Joseph McKee, in charge. McKee didn't agree with Walker's lackadaisical approach. His post as active mayor may have only been temporary, but he was determined to make the most of it. On February 9th, McKee ordered a raid on three Broadway shows he deemed immoral and obscene. And of course, at the top of that list was May's play, Sex. That night, May's car pulled up outside of the theater. She stepped out and headed inside, thinking about what she might do differently for that evening's performance. As she made her way towards the dressing rooms, a huge commotion broke out. Officers from New York's Municipal Vice Squad stormed the theater, made their way backstage, and surrounded May and her fellow actors. They arrested May for obscenity and handcuffed her in front of the company. Then they herded her and the rest of her fellow performers into black paddy wagons waiting outside. A growing crowd of onlookers and press watched from the street, snapping photos and shouting questions as the actors were taken away. May sat in the back of the paddy wagon and smiled to herself. She couldn't help thinking that this was the best publicity she could have asked for. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a look at Mae West's exploding fame and her move to Hollywood. For more information on Mae West, amongst the many sources we used, we found She Always Knew How, Mae West, A Personal Biography, by Charlotte Chandler, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callan. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 